This week on the show, we cover virtualization showdown between KVM and Beehive, the birth of the standard error, and why Steam started picking a random color. Also, maintaining sufficient free space with DNFS is discussed, updates to the Apple M1 and M2 bootloader on OpenBSD, FreeBSD on the workstation, and early setup instructions, and more in this week's episode of Steam. BSD Now, episode 484, Birth of Standard Error, recorded on the 30th of November, 2022. This episode of BSD Now is brought to you by Tarsnap. Go to tarsnap.com slash bsdnow to find online backup for truly paranoid people. And if you would like to support the show, maybe get me a new microphone because reasons, then, uh, or other reasons, check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash bsdnow for ways to support this show. And thank you in advance. Hello, I'm your host, Benedict Hoschling. And I'm Tom Jones. Welcome. So we are here with a fresh episode and hopefully the audio is better now. So apologies for the last, I think it's four episodes uh, that didn't uh, carry over too well audio-wise on my part. So I hope this is fixed now. We found the error and um, yeah, sorry for the bad quality. It was only my parts. The other people in the show were fine. I mean, and like when, when JT's editing was, if, if Benedict sounds bad, he sounds great right now. Very smooth. So <laughs> who knows? That's, yeah. Cursed good compliment here. to hear. <laughs> <laughs> and we're also live on Twitch now, hopefully a bit more regular than just when Alan is a co-host. Um, we'll see how this goes, right? Uh, we'll be waiting for your feedback at bsdnow.tv, our email address, and then we'll make adjustments if possible. All right. Uh, this morning when I woke up, I found myself reading a FreeBSD security advisory with Tom Jones' name on it. It's a ping thing. Um, quite nice. So Was it, was it well written? Because I wrote it. But... <laughs> you wrote the, the fix as well, not just the... Yeah. Oh, the... great. No, but I, I mean, I wrote... I, wrote I'm, I don't know. I don't know how much credit here is mine. Like, Mark did a lot of this too. It was the team. Yeah, right. It's not just your... It was work, me but you and found the team. initial bug, right? Uh, it was found through um, uh, LLVM's uh, address sanitizer. Uh, no, it was found through a test suite by um, NetApp. But yeah, it was found and picked up by someone else. And then I did the fix that is in FreeBSD based on someone else's code. But it's just yeah, cool. Mm -hmm. All right. Uh, let's not keep people waiting too long for the headlines. These are the ones that we have for you today. Uh, another Clara article about Beehive virtualization, a showdown, FreeBSD's Beehive versus Linux's KVM. Ooh. So they're basically comparing uh, the open source virtualization engines with an open mind, not to be too biased in one or the other direction here. And they start off with, not too long ago, we walked through setting up Beehive on FreeBSD 13.1. That's another article that you can also find from uh, our show notes or on Clara article itself. Today, we're going to take a look specifically at how Beehive stacks up against the Linux kernel's virtual machine. But before we can do that, we need to talk about the best performing configurations under Beehive itself. So when we talk about configuration options that have a massive performance impact, we're mostly talking about storage configuration. CPU configuration options tend to be fairly straightforward, but storage can be configured with different backends and virtual controllers 
which can have massive impact on both throughput and latency. OpenZFS is the only backend storage stack we'll be testing today. Its performance is generally excellent, and its feature set for virtual machine hosting is unparalleled. All right, so they talk about the Beehive storage options. Uh, there are three major categories of storage options or configuration tunables for these machines uh, when they run on OpenZFS. First, the OpenZFS block size, the hypervisor storage type, like a raw device on ZVault or a raw file on datasets, and a hypervisor storage controller, like an emulated NVMe, for example, or an emulated SATA SAS device, or Virg.io, that's also available. So then there's a section about uh, OpenZFS block size. The first of these configuration choices, OpenZFS block size, is the most flexible, and the one we devoted the least testing to. Generally speaking, you should match your block size, the ball block size if using ZVolts, and record size if using dataset, directly to your actual workload or, uh, yeah, for the best results. So they uh, describe this uh, in regards to random I.O. So the, we, uh, in this article or here, uh, they rec generally recommend a block size of 64K, which allows for decent, uh, though not ideal performance on both throughput uh, challenged, like uh, one MIP random IOs and IOPS challenged, which are 4K random IO workloads. And they talk a bit about uh, how uh, they came to this number and uh, how that makes sense for virtual storage at least. Then they talk about the hypervisor storage type. Like, unlike the OpenZFS block size, there's usually a single clear answer as to what storage type performs best on a given hypervisor. Linux's KVM is using three primary options QCOW2 on datasets raw files and datasets, and direct access to ZVaults as block devices. And they talk a bit about, you know, the differences, uh, what QCOW does on uh, uh, QMU-specific storage formats, and what uh, the raw files are, and so that's a good distinction there. And the part about the hypervisor storage controller is about, you know, what should we emulate, like an NVMe or a SATA SAS SCSI option, or the Power Virtual Virtio hardware, in quotes, <laughs> which is directly compatible with Linux's KVM. So, good quick question, and they discuss a couple of uh, options that are available, and then they go into a bit about, you know, the test setup, like how and why or which way they did the testing and what their setup looks like. And from their findings, it seems like that there's a performance boost when using emulated NVMe instead of Virt.io on Beehive guests. And you have... Uh, bar graphs and numbers to back that up. And there's also a performance boost when using raw file instead of set walls or Z walls, previously uh, 13.1 guess that is, and have uh, also graphs for that. And then the direct comparison Beehive versus KVM shows uh, that uh, in the tests they did, that, um, oh wait, let's leave that up to the reader, right? Or the listener, right? <laughs> Otherwise, you wouldn't be looking too much at this article, right? So let's keep that as an uh, open thing for you to look at. And it's that way, uh, you have a bit of a surprise, right? <laughs> nice conclusions as well. So it's enough teasing for that. And you should enjoy looking at the rest of the article. You, you really mean Benedict. <laughs> I know. I have my bad day today. No, I'm not. <laughs> okay. Next up, we have an article on Diomedes Spinalis' blog. And it's on the birth of standard error. Um, Diomedes writes, uh, earlier today, Stephen Johnson, in a mailing list run by the Unix Heritage Society, um, uh, you might have heard an interview with um, 
Warren block earlier this year that we did with um, Warren of um, the Unix Hysterical Society, uh, described the birth of the standard error concept. The idea that a program's error output is sent on a different channel from that of its normal output. Over the past 40 years, all major operating systems and language libraries have embraced this concept. The story starts with graphics systems C slash A slash T photo typesetter used by Bell Labs in the 1970s. This washing machine sized equipment would typeset documents by flashing a strobe to expose character glyphs that were pre-installed on a rotating drum. The drums supported four fonts, Times Roman, Italic, Bold, and Symbol. A magnifying glass was used to change the font size. The text input normally came from a paper tape and the output was rendered onto film, which then required a cumbersome, dirty, and smelly development process. Brian Walden relates that the chemical baths were nasty smelling and it gummed up the rollers. You'd need to regularly take the developer roller and gear gut into the janitor's closets and scrub it with a toothbrush in the slop sink under running water. As one might expect, Bell Labs didn't see, didn't use the paper tape. According to Doug McElroy, as soon as the machine arrived, Joe Asana, the author of Truff, bypassed the tape reader so that the C slash A slash T could be driven directly from the PDP-11. The manufacturer was astonished. It's hackers for you. Uh, the connection was one way only. So the corresponding device had write only permission and there was no way to obtain status feedback from the photo typesetter. Doug McElroy also remembers that amusingly, the first te technical paper that came off the C slash A slash T drew a query from the journal editor. They'd never seen a photo typeset manuscript before had it been published elsewhere. This arduous but cutting edge photo typesetting process set the stage for the invention of the standard error concept. Stephen Johnson describes the incident as follows. One of the most amazing and unexpected consequences of photo typesetting was the Unix standard error file. After photo typesetting, you had, uh, you had to take a long wide strip of paper and feed it carefully into the smelly icky machine, which eventually several minutes later spat out the paper with the printing visible. One afternoon, several of us has the same experience, typesetting something, feeding the paper through the developer, only to find a single beautifully typeset line, cannot open file foobar. The grumbles were loud enough and in the presence of the right people, and a couple days later, the standard error file was born. Oh, and that's the story? Oh. <laughs> that is wonderful. Yeah. What a great reason for anything to exist. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Especially when the background story involves icky, bad machines. It sort of makes you want to have, you know, a, a disgusting machine in the office just to make people suffer through first so they can understand right. the, the joy of <laughs> something else. To be fair, you could just use the typewriter I have. Do you want to come use my typewriter? Um, you would very, really, very quickly appreciate other stuff. Wasn't there a video the other day where a professor was denying the students to bring a laptop to the lecture and there was a student the next week typing on a typewriter? You, you, you can't read one? Reddit on a typewriter. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. Okay. Um, news Roundup this week has us looking at investigating why Steam started picking a random font, <laughs> which is kind of nice. The students the other day asked me, hey, does Steam work on FreeBSD? And I was like, a couple of years ago, I would have said no, but these days quite good actually it depends on a couple games what kind of uh, graphic support they need but previously it got some decent games running on steam but that's not the article here uh, this one is about the fancy or less fancy uh, fonts they suddenly picked and this is from pkh's blog not phk's blog be careful pkh 
is the name. And uh, this goes out of the blue. My Steam started picking a random font I had in my user fonts here. Virgil, the Excalidraw font. And you can see a picture that is typically not a very pleasant font to read for a you know interface. But, well, uh, why did this happen? That triggered me all sorts of emotions, ranging from laugh to total incredulity. I initially thought the root cause was a random derping from Valve, but the internet seemed quiet about it, so the unreasonable idea was it might have been my fault surface. To understand how it came to this, I have to tell you about the Stanley Parable. Parable. Ah, an incredibly funny game I highly recommend. One of the achievements of the game is to not play it for five years. Ooh. To get it, I disabled NTP, changed my system clock to 2030, started the game, enjoyed my achievement and restored NTP. Ah, clever. Some games can be fooled this way. Uh, so far so good. Mission is a success. I can move on with my life. But... Not satisfied with this first victory, I soon wanted to achieve the same in the Ultra Deluxe Edition. Uh, this one comes with the same achievement, except it's 10 years instead of 5. Ah, since 2022 plus 10 is too hard of a mental calculation for me, I rounded up to 2040. Oh, and followed the same procedure as previously. Achievement unlocked, easy peasy. Problem is, Steam accessed many files during that, sh that short lapse of time, which caused them to have their access time updated to... 2040. And you know what's special about 2040? It's after 2038. Get it yet? Here's the hint. Year 2038 problem. Yep, this is the kind of error uh, they were seeing in the console. User share fonts value too large for defined data type. What kind of error could that be? So, hmm, no idea, right? Uh, error no minus s, value too large, shows e overflow 75, value too large for defined data type. Nice, so we're triggering an overflow somewhere. More precisely, font configs 32-bit, an underlying code to be exact. Was going mad crazy because of that. So if you stat this, uh, then you get a couple of access of 2024 uh, timestamps. In order to fix this mess, I had to be a bit brutal. Uh, they remounted uh, with strict eight, uh, strict a time their root partition. Okay, interesting. Never had this option uh, used. Uh, the same for slash home, and then they were running a find with a uh, option newer at 2038, uh, 2039, uh, the 12th and 34th, and then did an exec touch of these found files for all of these, and then they remounted with rel a time uh, their root and home partition. Uh, the remounts were needed because rel a time is the default, which means file accesses get updated only if the current time is past the access time. And I had to remount both my root and home partition because Steam touched files everywhere. Not gonna lie, this self-inflicted bug brought quite a few life lessons to me. First, Stanley Parable metagame has no limit to madness. 2038 is going to be a lot of fun. 32-bit uh, games preservation is a sad state of affair and maybe run games from a special jail, maybe. That's my <laughs> take on that. Do not mess up your own <laughs> root partition. I don't. I don't think you can do separate time bases in jails. You can't because I don't think you can. Isolation. I think it's incredibly complex. I hope I'm wrong, but I don't think it works in FreeBSD. Um, we'll leave that up to the uh, audience to test that part. <laughs> I think we'll get feedback about that in the future. <laughs> but I wonder. I mean, they don't actually say what their operating system is, do they? Because there should be. Some uh, no. Um, yeah, that's a good take. Actually. Thirty-two bit binary on Linux. I think so, yeah. But I guess um, someone could repeat that experiment on a BSD uh, 
probably finding an interesting result. Or it's fixed, and we don't have to worry at least about fonts. <laughs> okay, next up in the news, we have an article, article from uh, Taris Gleck at taris.gleck.net. It is the curious case of maintaining sufficient free space with ZFS. They write, I use Proxmox VM server backed by a ZFS array of hard drives for various personal infrastructure. I also have security cameras that upload motion triggered videos to my server via FTP. The problem, I would like to use my 90% of my available space for most recent security videos. And so the recipe is create a dedicated ZFS volume, set up a ZFS quota, run a cron job to free space faster than it gets consumed by the video uploads. Seems straightforward. I set out to find a decent uh, disk freeing solution. I eventually settled on Python free disk. Most of these utils were written in bash and I didn't want to risk having to grasp and modify write only code. That's unfair. Um, I modified FreeDisk to support deleting files with a particular extension, uh, MP4, and deployed it. My changes to disk free are here. The author took part of them in, hoping for the rest to get upstreamed soon. I was surprised to see that the, the script freed up roughly 10 times more than I expected. So I added some debug logging, and after a few days of experiments, ended up with the following. Um, and it's a big list output of how many bytes it used. Um, to get this data, I added uh, alternate logic to disk free to, to free based on bytes deleted instead of file system free space, uh, e.g. the number reported by DF. I also added a few sleep to uh, df-h uh, on the export directory. It seems that after I delete files, it takes roughly five to 10 seconds for disk free information to settle. Problem settled. Obviously one should only free space by tracking bytes deleted or add sleep 10 before checking free space. Not so fast. ZFS is a file system that supports deduplication and compression. It also supports snapshots. This means that the file being deleted could be one, uncompressed and have no duplicates, be compressed and space freed would be less than the size shown by stat, be referenced by a snapshot, so no space is actually freed when the file is deleted, be deduped to another file, some combination of the above. So in order for ZFS to know how much space has been reclaimed by file deletion, it needs to check all these conditions and it should do this async of file deletion to now slow down file system operations. Luckily, ZFS documents this. ZFS is a transactional file system. Most file system modifications are bundled into transaction groups and committed to disk asynchronously. Until these modifications are committed to disk, they are termed pending changes. The amount of space used available and referenced by a file or file system does not consider pending changes. Pending changes are generally accounted for within a few seconds. Even committing a change to disk by using fsync or osync does not necessarily guarantee the space usage information is updated immediately. Conclusion. There is no universal way to ensure space is freed on ZFS. One needs to carefully consider how ZFS is being used in order to understand how to automatically maintain free space. I got burned by three in the list above about once or twice a year. Eventually I remember that I have a snapshot that diverged too much. This lagging indication of free space was new and fun and I figured it was worth a blog post. Uh, yep, and there's a follow-up by Chris Cyberman on his own blog. Uh, where he points out a couple other things. The thing that I would point out is don't use DF with ZFS because it will lie about sizes and doesn't understand the way ZFS allocates space typically. So always use ZFS list dash O space to actually let ZFS show the real values of uh, its space allocation. But generally the problems are still the same if you use this kind of thing. But many of the monitoring tools still use DF or DU and that might not be the proper way of figuring out, you know, how much space is left.
Ah, uh, the old Unix stuff breaks eventually. Yeah, right. But yeah, definitely good to be aware about that. And next up is a call for testing on updated Apple M1 or M2 bootloader code from OpenBSD. And in their journal, uh, they write from the bump my bootloader department that Tobias Heider or Top HE at posted to tech asking people which access to the relevant or with access to the relevant hardware to test updated updates to the ARM64 bootloader code. Uh, goes, hi all, we're working on an automated bootloader and device tree updates for Apple's silicon machines. This is necessary because both drivers and device trees are moving targets and without a way to update both, we need up uh, or we end up in situations where drivers suddenly stop working. And further down, all of the FW update infrastructure is already in place. The only thing missing is install boot, automatically copying the new binary to the EFI system partition. Uh, before we enable this for everyone, we should uh, would like to gather some test feedback to make sure everything works as expected. And for the following, you will need an M1, M2 machine running OpenBSD snapshots. New enough is Asahi bootloader. Remember, Asahi Linux is the one that made it uh, uh, possible to run on uh, the Apple M1. And OpenBSD kind of uh, took that and ran with it for their own. Uh, the easiest way to test that is to check that you have an M1N1 subdirectory on your EFI system partition. If you don't, this won't work for you and you will likely need to install at some point in the future. And then they provide instructions how to install and test a new bootloader by hand. And close with, in the unlikely case that something went wrong, restore this uh, MNT M1N1 boot.bin from your backup. In any case, please let them know about how it went. Well, it's interesting to see uh, or follow up how the uh, M1 experiments go for OpenBSD. Okay, last in the, the news roundup, we have a FreeBSD on my workstation. Um, this is on camandro.org. And they write, about a year ago, I tried to use FreeBSD on my laptop. The installation went just fine. I installed the 13.0 release with encrypted root on ZFS. Then I went on configuring everything, getting a graphical window manager, a browser, email client. Unfortunately, even before I finished all that, I started to see occasional system freezes that would require a hard reboot to recover. At that time, I suspected either a bug in the graphics driver or on the wireless driver, but I wasn't really sure. And worst of all, I didn't have that much time, free time to learn how to debug and fix these sort of things. My experience was mostly on the Penguin side of the world. I also had a vague recollection of finding a bug report in Bugzilla and someone complaining with a similar problem on similar hardware. But life runs fast and I had to reinstall my laptop with something I could use immediately. This week, I finally took some time to try again setting up FreeBSD on setting up a FreeBSD box that I could use regularly. I didn't try using my laptop. Instead, I used a workstation that has been sitting under my desk for a while without much use. Took uh, me some time to set it up. FreeBSD is way more difficult to install and configure than OpenBSD, but it's up and running now. And for future reference, here's a summary of what I've done. Um, the basic install, uh, going through BSD install nine was painless, uh, BSD install eight process was painless because I didn't have any odd requirements for obscure hardware. Once again, I wanted root on ZFS option. And since I was using the full disk for FreeBSD, there's a second hard drive in the box that I'm gonna use for backups later, but I haven't set up yet. I simply selected auto ZFS in the menu and I changed the encrypt disk question mark option to yes. The real fun begun af began after the reboot. First thing, I forgot there was no sudo or do as in the FreeBSD base. Thus I had to use good old SU for getting privileges to to install the required software and configure the system. So I uh, SU'd, um, ran FreeBSD update and install. Um, before doing any of that, they disabled the system bell. 
actually have a disabled in my shell. <laughs> but yeah, um, I guess the, term the terminal bell was really getting under their skin. We did a reboot after installing those updates and it was time to install packages using package. Eventually, maybe they'll try ports. Running the X window system obviously requires the installation of a video driver for the graphics card in the system. That's not actually true. You can run on the frame buffer if your hardware doesn't have graphics support yet, which is the case for my framework laptop, but it is prob you probably do want accelerated graphics. Anyway, uh, in my case, I have an old Radeon card, uh, which I found by running PCI-conf-LV. And in order to use it, uh, the runes were package install DRM KMOD, uh, add uh, sysrc KLD list Radeon KMS, um, echo kernel.vty equals vt into bootloader conf. The first line, all the video devices were installed. I'm sure I could have saved some disk space only installing the Radeon ones, but at the time I wasn't sure yet which the correct driver to pick was. Then the second line, make sure my driver is loaded at boot time. Finally, the last line, which changes the loader comp file, ensuring the system uses the new FreeBSD VT virtual terminal console driver. Using this driver works around an issue that the old driver had, which was to leave a blank screen when the X window system closed. Anyway, that line does the magic. Before rebooting again, I set XDM to run. This is because I'm running the old XDM window manager, XDM display manager. I don't really use a desktop environment, so there's no need for anything fancier. Another thing I always do in all my systems is to turn the caps lock key in my keyboard to an extra control key. Long time ago, I used to do this with xmodmap, but I find a better way in by adding it to uh, xorg.conf.d. I simply create a file uh, in there with 01 keyboard config, which turns off caps lock. And that's it. When x starts, it will load the keyboard correct, will load the correct keyboard layout and will give me an extra control key, no more pain. After our reboot, I could enjoy my new FreeBSD system. So far, it's been working flawlessly, and I even had a video call meeting using it. I'm planning to try again to use see if the laptop issues have been sorted out. Cool. It's always good to hear people's first experiences using FreeBSD getting installs. Yep, and since this covers 13.0, they could probably, or probably have by now, updated to 13.1. And yeah, nice way of getting started. BSD now is sponsored by Tarsnap. Everyone needs backups, and Tarsnap ensures that your backups are not only safe, but also secure. Your data is encrypted on your device before being sent to the cloud. You can be sure that only you have the ability to read your data. Tarsnap takes your data and works out what is duplicated so that bandwidth can be saved. It then assembles the data into compressed blocks and creates them with your local private key. And this key never leaves your system. The data is then uploaded into the cloud. Even if someone is able to obtain your data in the cloud, they will not be able to decrypt it and access your files. Tarsnap is easy to use. If you can use Tar, then you can use Tarsnap. Tarsnap is prepaid, so you never have to worry about an unexpected bill. Tarsnap is fully open source, allowing you to inspect the code and make sure it does what we say it does. And Tarsnap has bug bounties, so that if you find errors in the code, you can get paid for helping make the software better. With clients on all major platforms, there's no excuse not to have good backups. Go to tarsnap.com to learn more. So at this point, uh, we're jumping into our feedback and questions. We always get questions. Uh, sometimes people wait a bit longer, depending on how much we have in the queue. Uh, if you want to send something on uh, your own uh, dime or maybe on your own uh, idea that you want to have in the show, send it to feedback at bsdnow.tv, like questions or comments, anything that you want to like highlight or talk about with us in a uh, 
interesting way, not too real time, but at least a bit asynchronous. Um, Brad, for example, here did that and has uh, posted his initial setup. I think it's a Brad that I know. Um, so shout outs go out. And that goes, hey, JT, Benedict, and Alan and Tom and any at all I have missed, okay? Uh, Tom and Benedict were asking for initial steps we take when setting up a new machine. So I thought I'd include mine. Yeah, great. Please consider this a work in progress. I have been mostly setting up jails recently and with Benedict's help, I have put a lot of it into Ansible playbooks. Ah, now I really know who that is. Okay, good to know that this uh, was useful. So part one uh, of my steps are to spin up the jail, which can be ignored if it's a hardware host, okay? Uh, the part one on the host machines console create jail and log into the console and uh, they uh, the commands were provided so people can follow along if they want to try this out in their own systems or compare with their own nodes um the the iocage create well there are other jail managers of course but here iocage is used and the p option points to a file with packages to install during creation of the jail oh cool i didn't know that that you could do oh, getting ideas already for, for work. Uh, okay. Um, the file looks like this. Ah, PKGs. And then, uh, yeah. Uh, so the initial packages here are Python 3.9, sudo, rsync, vim, bash, tmux, and the node exporter. Okay. Then log into the iocage console on the jail host with iocage console and the host name or the jail name. And then part two. Configuration from the console. In the console, we have to set up the groundwork for Ansible. Install a few necessary packages, Python 3.9. That's what we already did earlier, right? For the, yeah. Um, mm, yeah, we did that. Okay, Python 3.9. I will probably be setting up Prometheus or Grafana later. Yes, please do that. It's uh, lovely graphs being generated this way. Uh, this list is the same as the one in section one in case, ah, in case the host being provisioned is not an IOKH jail. Now I get it, okay. So in addition to the packages above, on a hardware node, I also install SmartMon tools. Yes, ZFS tools and NTP. Why would you need ZFS tools? Is that for a Linux box? No, they're, they're called different on a Linux box. Don't know yet. Okay. Uh, create it. the Ansible user and set it up in sudoers. Enable SSHD on the first host or on the host first. Get rid of weaker prime numbers. ETC SSHD moduli. Oh yeah, cool. I needed to... Uh, Find which numbers those are. Ah, there's an awk command that removes this nicely. Okay. Then delete any existing keys and set up uh, only good ones, generating keys and start SSH. So um, that regenerates the ones uh, you need or don't need. So they uh, here disable SSH, DDSA keys and anything else. Oh, ECDSH as well. And it's a bit hard to read, but yeah, SSHD ED25519 should definitely be enabled, and that's quite good. RSA, uh huh, good. And then they do the uh, regeneration. Okay, so part three from the Ansible host called Worf. Oh, nice. I see where the <laughs> Star Trek fans are. Here we go. This is where we finally get to run the playbooks. Push the Ansible SSH key to the new server, uh, SSH copy ID, source, and target machine are given. And then you, you can run ansible-playbook, playbooks, uh, and then the playbook name. Provide the host name from your Ansible inventory. And then the Ansible hopefully nicely runs along. And a little bit of explanations. Provision, YAML, installs remaining core packages. 
and sets up the backup PC service account and user account for Storm, which is a separate machine. Uh, user setup YAML installs BTC bash prompt, uh, which sets prompt colors for bash prompts. Okay, personal preference. Configure roots.login to launch bash on login uh, without changing roots shell to bash. Okay, adds the following lines to slash boot slash bash rc and dot profiles for ansible backup pc and storm users all right ssh setup yaml setup ssh underscore config to allow key-based root login and set up authorized keys for root storm and backup pc cool that's a good start yeah we were i think uh talking a little bit further down into uh the more playbooks you write the sooner you need to look at uh roles eventually but you can also run three playbooks after it uh, after each other yeah, that gets you a host that's fairly well secured and, uh, <laughs> yeah, with the base software you need. Th thanks thanks for sending us, Brad. And you say at the bottom that you're going to send us updates, but you, you could just start a blog. You have, like, your first blog post. Uh, even better, right? And don't think no one would read that, right? We're already two people. And then we'd still cover it. It's not like we're <laughs> saying, I mean, where do you think we find the blog posts? <laughs> And this show yeah. apparently reaches a couple more people than just us two, Tom and me, or Alan and me. Really? And so why not? <laughs> people listen. Oh, wow, okay. And it doesn't have to be perfect, right? It can just be what it is, and you can live with the uh, comments people provide, and they're usually helpful, and no one listens to the haters anyway. <laughs> okay, next up we have um, some feedback from Joseph, and Joseph writes, uh, Hi, Tom. Oh, cool. Hi, Tom, Alan, Benedict, and JT. I love the show. Just a quick note, read episode 481, an article about Postgres on OpenBSD. Instead of building Postgres from source, running OpenBSD current provides the most recent packages. I've run current in production for years and have had perhaps one or two minor temporary problems at the very most. I keep some machines a few versions behind just for safety. There are no guarantees on current, but in practice it just works for me at least. I use custom written client management software with Postgres as a background. The Perl front end allows me to send bills and collect payments and send messages using APIs for the various external services I have to use. Thanks again for a great show. I learned so much from you and really enjoy each episode. Thanks, Joseph. I hope the things you learn are correct. Oh, yeah. yeah, but yeah, yeah that's cool. We provide some starting points and people can find either uh, the blog posts we have on the show notes or go do their own searching for the missing bits. And if they write in like you did, they have... Uh, everyone's uh, smarter afterwards. Exactly. Right. And I, I feel like in a time where we're um, decentralizing the web again, more people could, could blog. It's very easy to run a blog. You don't have to set up your own server. I mean, we're definitely the audience for it, but you can very easily use a service. There's plenty of places you can run a blog, which are not huge companies that um, would allow you to have a voice in the world. Uh, and <laughs> blog posts don't have to be very long. The length of some of our questions are actually great blog posts because they allow you to return to material in the future um and they help you write better so it's, it's always good but you know big fan of blogging me <laughs> Thank, thanks or if you're not into writing then hey start a video thing yeah, start a podcast right. there could be another bsd yeah, podcast. Or that audio only yeah <laughs> if you're not too now uh, we're now we're streaming again we need someone to be in the audio only space yeah, yeah. <laughs> so there's plenty of options these days so if you don't tip, dip your food in the ocean, then you don't know how wet it is or what the temperature is going to be like. Um, that was a big stretch of a metaphor, but I think you get what I mean. <laughs> anyway, um, any parting words from this? Yeah, they can't hear me in the live stream, but that's fine. 
Oh, that's our feedback. Okay. Yeah, we'll <laughs> see how that goes. <laughs> we'll fix it. <laughs> so uh, thanks for the feedback. And we'll be back, of course, with another weekly episode next week. And people listening uh, or watching us on Twitch right now. And there will be another one following 